0: To the mad wild west podcast kick your boots off and stay a while because you're about to hear the stories lost in time from the people that lived and made the wild west mad oh do we have a story for you today Our main story, we're going to follow some men heading out to go find their riches in the Mad Wild West, but let's see if they make it or not. How often have you left your house on a trip and wondered if you were ever going to make it back alive? Welcome to the Mad Wild West. I know what you're asking yourself. Who are the sponsors of this wonderful podcast? Well, today we've got a couple, and this comes from April 15th, 1897, Dr. King's New Life Pills. A trial will convince you of their merits. These pills are easy in action and are particularly effective in the cures of constipation and sick headache. For malaria and liver troubles, they have been proven invaluable. They are guaranteed to perfectly free from every delirious substance and to be purely vegetable. They do not weaken by their action but they give tone to the stomach and bowels, greatly invigorating the system. Send your address to R.E. Bucklin and Company, Chicago, to get free samples. And one more sponsor, Hood's Sarsaparilla. Terrible sores? Could not walk for nearly a year completely cured by Hood's. Here's a testimonial that'll get you. I had terrible sores on one of my legs. I was attended by a physician, and to no avail. Nothing helped. At Little Rock, my foot was hurt, and troubles were pronounced to be cancerous. An infection grew, and I grew worse, and expected to lose the foot. I began to take Hood's sarsaparilla, and in a short time, my foot improved. kept on taking Hood's sarsaparilla, and now I am sound and well, and my foot does not trouble me at all. My blood is pure. I was never in better health. And that's from John C. Parks, his testimonial. Remember, Hood Sarsaparilla. It's the best in the fact there's one only true blood purifier. Hood Sarsaparilla. Can be found at all druggists, one dollar. I hope all you Mad Wild West listeners had a wonderful new year. But I know you didn't come to talk about 2023. You're all here because we want to see what's going on 150 years ago in the crazy, mad, wild west. So let's take a look. Right now, we're going to go back to the weekly Arizona miner, August 8th, 1868. So here's some news from around the Arizona territory during that time. Headline reads, remarkable phenomenon bursting of a water spout, another Deluge. About nine o'clock Sunday morning last, there occurred in Yuma County, in this territory, one of the dreadful catastrophes in nature known as a waterspout, which, for the immense volume of water cast out of it and the terror it inspired in those who witnessed its mighty operations, is without a parallel in similar phenomenon. Mr. James Grant, mail contractor on the La Paz and Prescott route, arrived here with mail Wednesday last and related to us the following particulars. He had left La Paz Saturday morning and proceeded about 14 miles when he beheld a tremendous black cloud moving towards him from the direction of Granite Wash. Nothing daunted, he kept on his journey until arriving at the big ravine fourteen miles this side of tyson's well now robert's station where he found the freight trains of miller brothers of prescott in a badly demoralized condition while the wagons, or a part of them, were crossing the ravine or wash, a flood of water came very near, destroying the whole train. It rushed upon them, upsetting in its mad career one wagon, breaking two wheels, and drowning four mules, three of which belonged to Miller and Brothers, and one other that barely escaped had not the teamsters cut the traces and allowed the mules to get out of the flood every animal belonging to both trains would have been drowned mr miller informed mr grant that never before had he heard such fearful noises as rent the air previous and daring the terrible bursting of the monstrous black cloud mr grant soon after struck out and on arriving in henniger's valley he was confronted with the waters which had receded to a place with which they spread out over the immense valley his only show to make time and headway was to wade into the water which he did and finally succeeded in getting himself the mail and horse across the valley a distance of five miles It was a dreadful visitation of nature, and we hope another such occurrence will never again take place in Arizona. Here's an interesting story. Oni's tramps are over. That's the headline. The tramp dog Oni, who has traveled hundreds of thousands of miles on mail cars and steamer ships, has been barred from further indulgence in pilgrimages. Superintendent Troy of the Railway and Mail Service says the dog has become a nuisance and hence an order declaring him and barring him from privileges on mail cars has been issued. Here's some really big news. Very interesting. This is from the Weekly Arizona Minor, October tenth, 1868. It reads, From South America, Accounts of the Great Earthquakes. The news which appears in our columns today is the most appalling and heart-wrenching it has ever been our painful lot to lay before our readers. Thousands upon thousands of lives called into eternity in an instant. Whole cities, towns, and villages swept away from the face of the earth as if by magic. Dozens of ships with their crews whirled away from their anchorage like toys, by the receding sea and then swallowed up by mighty waves or washed far away up into the heart of the city. Such a picture of general destruction and desolation extending hundreds upon hundreds hundreds of miles along the coast, and reaching from the seaboard up into the topmost parts of the Andes, can scarcely be imagined, as it contained in our correspondent's letters, and the readers stand aghast with horror when he tries to contemplate or comprehend the magnitude of devastation that has occurred. Whether the desolation is yet at an end, or what greater ruin we shall yet to hear, no one can imagine. For there are many points in the interior, farther south, unheard from, whilst noting whatever has reached us from the Colombian frontier. So it goes on and talks about this massive earthquake and also looks like a tsunami. But here I want to read this, Destructions of Ships, and this is an account from a gentleman there that witnessed it. He says, I stood breathless looking at the awful sight, thanking God life had been preserved to me and my loved ones, but each second was a lifetime. Looking seaward, I saw the ship still hurrying on to their doom, and in a few minutes, all was complete. Every vessel was either ashore or bottom upwards. The Peruvian war steamer, America, lost about 85 hands. The U.S. steamer, Watery, Escaped with loss of one life. With a small draft of water, she was carried boldly on top of the seas and landed about a quarter mile inshore on a railroad track. The United States store ship was bottom upwards. Every soul on board perished except the captain, surgeon, and paymaster who were on shore and were saved. The British bark of Liverpool was lying up on the beach. The remains of the whole half of her crew perished. An American bark, laden with guano, was swallowed up and has not left the vestige to tell her fate. The last of the ill-fated squadron, a Peruvian brig, was placed on the railroad track, apparently without losing a rope or spar. On what was hence happened, it is needless to dwell." For nearly two days, we lay on the hills without covering and without food, in constant state of alarm as the shocks of earthquakes were incessant. Imagine that massive earthquake off the western shores of Colombia and South America that destroyed hundreds of towns and cities. Today's main story talks about the dangerous travels in the Mad Wild West. We're picking up here at the edge of the eastern border of Arizona and the western border of New Mexico. This story is going to demonstrate how truly tough it was to travel back in the 1800s. So straddle up, here we go. In 1874, 12 of us started on horseback from Fort Defiance in the western part of New Mexico, near the eastern line of Arizona, to go to the junction of Green and Grand Rivers in Utah, to a place known as the Old Mormon Fort, of which I will speak more fully after we have reached it. Our intention was to travel across the country of the Pueblos and Navajos, since by that route it was some 600 miles nearer than it would be to go around. We had an Indian trail nearly all the way. I carried a compass with me all the time, and I had been with a surveying corps establishing government boundaries for three years. I had also a good knowledge of the mountains and felt confident I could pilot a company of men through the territory without the least danger of getting lost, if not molested or interfered with by Indians, who are as thick in that country as grasshoppers in Kansas." It being so much nearer across, no one belonging to the party would hear of any other route being taken, and all insisted that I should be the leader of the party. We expected to be able to make the trip across in 20 days. We procured riding and pack animals and laid in a 20 days supply of provisions. We took no more than this, since we had no doubt but that we could procure provisions in Utah as cheap as in New Mexico and cheaper than in Arizona. We did not want to be encumbered with so many pack animals and so much stuff. We had bedding and everything necessary for camping out comfortably. We carried also good rifles, revolvers, and plenty of ammunition to use on our way if the occasion should require it. The first day we traveled through sand and some alkali. The next day traveling was a little better. We got on higher ground and we could move along without being wearied to death with alkali and sand. When we came to the Sierra del Carrizo. We traveled through portions of the range of great natural beauty and grandeur. The mighty mountain crags lifted their jagged crest to dizzy heights toward the deep blue of the distant heaven. In many places, their summits were lost to view in the midst of masses of fleecy clouds that cling around their snow-clad slopes, while midday up the sides of some of these mighty mountain peaks were stunted pines of a green and vibrant hue peeping from out the midst of the eternal snows around them. A little lower on the slopes is an occasional track of pines or firs, often acres in extent, with the trees all dead, some standing, others leaning ready to topple over with the slightest push, and a great portion lying in confusion, just as they had been prostrated by the fires from Indian encampments where the winds had thrown them. The valleys lying between the hills were covered with particular grass, such as seen in nowhere else in the territory, in a dead and dried up state. The noisy rush of the swollen mountain streams, for there had been recent rains, as they went rushing down the meandering courses through the deep canyons, the faraway mountains veiled in the hazy enchantment of distance. The charming little mountain parks breaking in upon the view here and there, threaded by pure rivers sparkling with trout, and shut in by arrow-like quaking asps, palms, and firs, altogether a scene which awakened the liveliest emotions within us. We found vent in animated conversation and song. Yet, on the other hand, the grand sublimity that enveloped the higher peaks as they stood in the majesty of primeval beauty, snow-covered and half-hidden in enfolding clouds, often hushed us to silence. It had been stormy weather as we could see before we ascended the mountains, and as we approached the summit, we knew there was yet more in wait for us for as night drew near, it grew darker and more dreary. We selected our camping place, a cluster of trees with a small strip of grass nearby. This furnished feed for our Mustangs, while the chaparrals afforded some protection and shelter from the wind, but not much from the rain. We made our horses fast to the stakes, driven into the ground. We protected our packs from the rain that was by this time falling in torrents out of the darkness above us by piling up in one large heap and covering this up with canvas. We had no tents and there were no houses nearer than those we had left some 200 miles behind. No cooking could be done for we could not build a fire. Everything was wet, green, and soaked through. After several unsuccessful attempts had been made by different ones to light a fire, and all the paper and kindling material that we carried had been consumed to no purpose, and a good share of our matches had been wasted, we concluded to do without a fire. We made a very light supper of crackers and raw meats we made preparations to camp for the night by cutting some of the largest chaparral and placing two on the end in the ground opposite each other, allowing the upper ends to stand up four or five feet high with a ridge pole resting on them. The two posts were placed just far enough apart to allow a double blanket to be stretched over the ridge pole, thus forming a tent and making splendid shelter for the night where four persons could sleep very comfortably. The storm lasted all night and until 10 o'clock the next day. We then built a large fire and dried our clothing and blankets and, at the same time, prepared something to eat, for we had eaten but very little since the morning before, and we were all feeling hungry. After breakfast, we cleaned and dried our guns and revolvers, then saddled our animals and packed up. Proceeding on in the afternoon, we found every gorge in the mountain full of water that went roaring and pitching down its sides, washing before it everything that was loose enough to be moved. Whole trees could be seen floundering and bouncing and crashing along the precipices and around the rocks, turning sharp angles, swept on by the mighty torrent to the valley below. We pushed forward without any road or trail to guide us, the rain having completely obliterated it. We encountered streams and bodies of water continually during the afternoon, a few of which we could leap over, but most of which we were compelled to ford. About four o'clock, we struck a trail bearing in the direction we wanted to go. We followed the remainder of the evening, until we came to a splendid spring of water bubbling out of the rocks. There was grass nearby, so we camped for the night. But we could find no wood. We gathered old moss and stuff as wild animals gather together for beds in the neighborhood of the ledges of the rocks. We managed to make fire to boil our coffee and fry our meat, which two articles soon disappeared. The next day we followed the mountain trail, which still led in the direction we were going. It was barely wide enough for a horse to travel on. It went winding around cliffs, often on the very brink of precipices hundreds of feet deep. Should a horse fall, he would be dashed to pieces on the rocks beneath. No relishing the idea of such a death, the most of us led our horses along the most difficult, narrow passes. That night we camped in a large forest. From every side all manners of strange noises could be heard. The screaming of panthers and wild cats, screeching of birds, and croaking of innumerable frogs made up a concert that was novel and lively, if not agreeable. One who has never spent a night in the mountain forest can form no just concept of the strange and unearthly noises which make the hours of darkness hideous. Oftentimes, while one is asleep, some wild animal will come up and smell around your couch and, perhaps, give some terrifying howl that will cause you, almost instinctively, to clutch your gun and bound from your bed. Looking around, you behold the glaring eyes of some wild beast fix upon and watching you. It may be a panther, mountain lion, grizzly bear, Mexican jaguar, American tiger, wolf, or some other of the hundreds of wild beasts that inhabit those wildernesses. You may hear him sniff the air and walk away, for the chances are it will be so dark that you cannot shoot. These wild animals seldom attack a man unless goaded by hunger or wounds. The next morning when we got up, all were complaining of a sleepless night and some sore limbs and aching heads. After everything was ready for the march, we descended to the valley below, thinking to travel up the valley as we would have easier traveling and, at the same time, be out of where we could see what was going on. This last object was quite desirable, for we were now in Indian territory. The pony and moccasin tracks of the Navajo could be plainly seen on all sides. We kept our rifles constantly in front of us, ready for instant use. The day was passed, however, without seeing an Indian, though we were on constant alert, for we knew that the Indians were numerous all through this section of the country. We halted before sundown, ate supper, and smoked a while. Some of the boys were just saddling up to proceed onward. I was taking a little stroll from camp and smoking along at my leisure, when suddenly, and after all, unexpectedly, I beheld a traveler clad in buckskin, hastily making his way toward us. He carried a Henry rifle in front of him, and a pair of huge pistols, and a hunting knife in his belt. His belt was filled with cartridges. He seemed to be peering around and watching every moving object, and listening keenly to every sound but seemingly intent nevertheless on coming to us. After he came near enough, I could see that he was a young man, 34 or 35 years of age. And upon forming his acquaintance, I found him to be a light-hearted and jovial fellow. He was, however, one of the sons of Kentucky, whose early education had been sadly neglected, for he could not read or write his name. He was gifted with a good share of caution and was firm as a grizzly, two qualities which we much needed afterwards, as you will learn. For Bennett and I remained chums for the next 18 months. He had carried the United States mail for over a year through Arizona, and was at this time off duty. After the usual salutations were passed, and our visitor had sat down to a supper one of our boys had prepared for him, the general conversation in reference to business and matters generally what are you doing and where are you going, came and went at random, as is usual on such occasions. But to cut the story short, Bennett was persuaded into the notion of going with our party into Utah territory. He had been out at one of the agencies and was then on his way to California District in Arizona. He had been out at one of the agencies and was then on his way to California District in Arizona. He had seen us as he was crossing one of the divides and had come down to see who we were. He said the Indians were watching us as he supposed, or else we would have seen plenty of them before we got to the heart of their country, as he had seen a number of them that day, but none in speaking distance. After supper, we again made ready, and we were soon on our way to find a place for camp for the night. During the evening, I gave Bennett to understand what our business was, that we were a company of prospectors going to Elk Mountain at the junction of Green and Grand Rivers to hunt for some of the hidden wealth that was supposed to lie there in chunks as large as hogheads. Bennett went with us until we changed our minds and concluded not to go through. About nine o'clock, we camped for the night, all laying down to sleep except the man on guard. We had no fire, as that would have been seen from a long distance and would reveal our whereabouts. The next morning, we had brought our horses close to camp. We were just getting ready to pack and saddle, when one of the men on the lookout sung out, "'Engines, engines!' Immediately, the camp was in the midst of a terrible excitement, and though everything was lying near at hand, yet some of the men could not see their guns." There were two in the party who could find nothing they wanted or that belonged to them. I gave these two and another orders to attend to the horses. One of them grabbed an axe and went to driving the picket pens down tight so as not to let our horses be stampeded and get away from us. Up to this time, none of us expected the sentinel had seen the Indians. I gave orders that if we had to fight, we should scatter out so as to protect the horses and at the same time for each one to look out and secure safety for himself. I then took my gun and ran upon a little hill a short distance from camp so I could get a better view and ascertain how many there were of the Indians and whether we seemed to be the object of their attention or not. Having gained the hill, I could see 27 Indians, not more than one quarter of a mile away, coming down upon us with the horses in full run. They were painted up in the most warlike manner. I'd scarcely gained the hill before I was observed. They had been coming in single file, but now they commenced to quicken their speed still more and to scatter over more ground so as not to expose so many to the same range. As soon as I got sight of them, I knew we'd have to fight, or fare worse. I looked around for some place where I could run for safety. I saw the boys going in all directions, hunting for the best holes to creep into. I noticed a rock, and I suppose it to be between where I was and the horses, a little to the right of the direction from which the Indians were coming." I broke for that, but I was terribly disappointed when I got to it, for it was nothing but a sand heap the ants had piled up, but I had no time to run further. The Indians had already gained upon us, and were coming down on us as fast as their horses could carry them, and making a more fearful noise with their yells than ten times that many coyotes possibly could make. I had run a considerable distance, and their horses had gained on me until they were not over one hundred yards away." The boys had all scattered, so that none of them could be seen except the three who were holding the horses. The others had gone, as I had said, every fellow for himself, and not a shot had been fired until I reached my aunt's nest, when, as I threw myself behind it, a whole volley of bullets went singing over my head and into the sand above me. The Indians then made a break to capture or stampede the horses. Up to this time, I had heard but two shots fired by our side. But as soon as they made for the horses, then they were brought fairly into view and a stream of laden bullets was poured into the midst from all sides. Horses and riders went careening and falling together. They could stand it no longer than about 10 minutes when they started on their retreat. They almost ran over me on retreating. One of them certainly would have done so if he had not been killed on his way. They lost 10 of their warriors and six horses. One of our men who was holding the horses was killed and another shot through the ear. This together with general frightfulness of the situation was enough to make a man feel scared. The Indians seldom leave their dead upon the field, but we got six of these and only four were carried off. The reason the dead bodies are carried off the field is because the Indians generally tie themselves to the saddle by a strap that comes over the thigh and holds them on tight enabling them to lean themselves from either side of a horse and pick up an object from the ground, the horse, being at the same time on a dead run. These ponies are accustomed to running together and will keep together, rider or no rider, if let alone, so that if an Indian is killed, his pony will take him to camp there to meet a burial after the customs of their tribe. We buried our dead comrade by wrapping up in his blankets and placing him in the sand about three feet deep. We threw the bodies of the Indians into a shallow ditch and pushed some sand over them. This might be considered a little rough, but such is the custom of the country. This is far better, moreover, than the Indians do themselves, as I will show soon. The Indians retreated in the direction from which they came, none of us following them. It was not in our intention to molest them or to interfere in any way with their interests, if only permitted travel through their country in peace. We now packed up and moved on, as we wanted to get through as soon as we could and not give them a chance to murder our whole party. This, I remember, was as lovely a day as I ever saw, but yet we were depressed and felt sad on the account of our dead comrade. His name was Charles Willett. He was from Illinois. I do not know from what part of the state. He was 27 or 28 years of age and a very fine young man, and he was liked by all of his comrades in the West. About noon or a little after, we came to some splendid water and grass. Here we halted and let mustangs rest and eat and provided dinner for ourselves. After resting a while, we moved on to the mouth of the canyon, where the mountain is traversed by the San Re-Nadado Pass. We had traveled perhaps two miles up the canyon when the Indians again set upon us. They were behind rocks, on top of the bluffs, and in fact, they were everywhere it was possible to hide. Not an Indian had we seen since morning. Not even an Indian sign marked the way. The first warning was a volley of bullets coming from the bluffs, from every rock and hole to the right, to the left, behind, in front, and above us. Every place was filled with noise and alarm of the Indian rifles and they so well concealed that not one was yet to be seen. We saw at once that we were lost, for in such a place there could be no salvation for us if we went any further. Some of our comrades had fallen at the first volley, and some were falling now. We beat a retreat as fast as we could. When we got out of reach of their arms, we found that we had lost seven men and all of our pack animals, food, blankets, everything except such things as we had in our pockets. There were only four of our original party left. These, with Bennett making five of us, were left to beat our retreat as best we could. We had been only seven days out and eight of our comrades already dead and the rest of us in the greatest danger. There were Indians on all sides of us. Only a few moments before we had felt very jolly and confident at getting through without further fighting. Now there was no hope. The best we could do was to beat a retreat back the way we came as best we might without provisions. The Indians followed us all that evening. We traveled all night and all the next day and night. We halted along enough at places where there was water and grass to let our horses rest and feed a while for everything depended upon them. We were of course getting hungry and tired ourselves, but the Indians were still in sight pursuing us. Signals could be seen in all directions. We knew that they were following us up as fast as their little jaded horses would permit. We could occasionally, from some of the high points we were passing over, see them in the distance coming toward us as fast as their ponies could be urged along. For two nights and better than a day, we had not tasted a morsel to eat. We knew of a small stream of water a little further ahead, which we had crossed over on our way out, where we had seen some fish. We had not seen any game that day, or the day before, to kill. And the fish were our only hope of relief from several days of hunger and suffering. We struck out for the stream, and fortune favored our efforts. For once, we encountered no Indians on the road, nor at the creek. We went to work with our saddle blanket for a net, and we were not long in catching more than we could eat for the nicest kind of small trout, from three to six inches in length. We wasted no time and kept moving on, not getting much sleep. However, for the night was cold, and we had no covering except the small blankets used under the saddles. These were damp with sweat of the horses and full of hair. We did not dare build a fire as the light would reveal our place of camping a long distance away and show the Indians our exact locality, and none of us were desiring another fight. We were thankful that we were alive. We formed a sad little group as we huddled around close together, telling one another how near we came to being left with our comrades in the canyon pass. The Indians would, no doubt, have a big powwow and war dance over the scalps of our brave fellows. Such things may be read of, perhaps without causing much, if any, emotion or feeling. But no pen can paint the picture. No tongue can tell of it. No idea can be conveyed to a person who has never been where the dreaded war hoop sends terror to the strongest heart and a shudder even to the very depths of the soul of the feelings one has had under such circumstances. Even now, I imagine, I can see again my comrades as they conversed together around the campfire or sung their merry songs while traveling over the desolate wilds of the West. Again I see them in the fierce struggle for life or death with the Indian men falling dead or mortally wounded to be sacrificed to the knife of the dusky warrior. They take no prisoners. No mercy is shown the white man that is unfortunate enough to fall into their hands in the time of war. Our sleep on this night was none of the soundest, for besides the cold, perhaps by the time we were commencing to doze, some wild animal would utter fearful screams, striking new terror in our hearts. Such was the first night's rest we had taken for some time. At three o'clock, we saddled our horses and started. It was well for us that we did so, for the Indians were on our trail as soon as the light enough to see to follow it. But two hours of travel had given us a good start, and when we had crossed a small valley where the last slope leading to the Rio Pereco, we could see the Indians by looking through Bennett's glass on a slope between us and the slope where we had camped. We reached the Rio Pereco that evening where we found a party of prospectors who were returning to Prescott from an unprofitable expedition in search for rich mining ground. They gave us all we could eat and shared blankets with us so that we got a more comfortable night's rest than we had enjoyed for some time. Perhaps the reader would like to know the names of some of our comrades who were killed. I took down all their names and places from which they came as far as I could remember of their having told me. As everything had fallen into the hands of the Indian in the canyon, I am unable to tell where they're all from. William Fleming, aged near 40, of Philadelphia, Chris Olton of Indiana, George Goodhall of Indiana, D.P. Willer of either Dayton or Springfield, Ohio, George Brady of St. Louis, William Carlton, and one more who went by the name of Arkansas because he had formerly been a resident of Arkansas. His name I never knew. The four who escaped with me were A. Bennett of Kentucky, still alive, George Bales of Iowa, now living in Nevada, J.T. Taylor, now somewhere in California or Nevada, and John Middleton, now in Colorado. From Prescott, Bennett and I went to Nevada. There you have it, the dangers and crazy times of traveling across the Wild West in the 1800s. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening.